Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Significant Others. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien, and in this month's bonus episode, which is one of the last before season two starts coming out, we're joined by Dr. Emily Wilson, author, translator, and professor of classical studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's best known for being the first woman to translate the Odyssey into English, and she just followed that up with a translation of The Iliad. Hot tip, they make a great gift set. Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for doing this. Sure, yes, I'm excited for this. Um, it's so fun for me to get to speak to you. I'm a fan on many levels. But the reason I thought that it would be cool to talk to you on in this forum is because I feel that the role of translator is profoundly important and vastly underexamined. Yes. And it's so easy for an average you know, reader, let alone listener to any kind of news that might be coming from another part of the country to not give it the proper weight and credit. And I'm speaking from experience, uh, including very recently, embarrassingly enough, um, you know, reading Lydia Davis's translation of Madame Bovary and and seeing how incredibly different it was from the Madame Bovary that I read in high school that was Stieg Miller's version. And of course, I had read Bovary in the original in college, but I think my French wasn't good enough to really, you know, appreciate all of the nuances. So that's sort of where I'm coming from with sort of going like, oh, wait, nobody gets how important this connector is. So I was wondering if you could just start by talking about what the role of translator means to you. Yes, I, I think that was a fabulous introduction to it. I mean, I think there's all different kinds of translation in the world. I mean, literary translation is just a small subset of the work of interpreters, who I think I, I admire so much, people who are able to you know, generate translation just orally, and it's so important right. in the world in diplomatic purposes, but also there's business translation, medical translation, legal translation. I mean, all these international fields where people can't communicate without translation, and yet um, in many cases, the translators are very poorly paid and under-recognized, and international communication of any kind can't happen without translation. As, and also, in literary terms, communication with the dead around the world can't happen without translators. Right. I think of that classic joke that's made over and over again, and no one seems to really take it further than that, which is, you know, a like a translator mistranslating in a moment for comic effect, you know, sort of repeating the wrong things. But we're all so vulnerable to it. And so, yes, it's it's it resonates across all of these different spheres. So specifically in your world, I mean, I just I, I'm still flabbergasted that that you are the first. I mean, it's amazing, but like that you're the first woman to have retranslated this piece of literature 
which was not written down as a text. Is that right? Homer was a bard? It was written down as a text. It's based on a, on many oh, okay. centuries of oral poetic composition. But the Iliad and the Odyssey, like what they are is poetic texts. They're written things. So to tell the story of Troy was done over and over and over. But right. not every story, not every song about Troy is the Iliad. Only the Iliad right. is the Iliad. I mean, there's, there's also a lot of scholarly debate about the degree to which over the course of the centuries that the Iliad and the Odyssey were being reperformed by, they were called rhapsodes, poetry performers, in mm. a way like actors, but their, their specialty was not multi-voice drama, but multi-voice epic. Over that period of throughout the 6th, 5th, 4th centuries, how much did the, did the performance text change? And that's still right. much debated. Right. That would be. Yes. Um. So I've read many lovely and wonderful and helpful reviews and interviews um, to sort of illuminate the some of the tiny little nuances that that resonate so loudly in your work. But I'm wondering if you could say sort of broadly how it is that you think that your perspective was so radically different from everything that had come before. Is it just being female or is it everything else that makes you who you are? I think it's, I, I, th I think, you know, gender is such a complicated thing, which I probably don't need to tell you. I mean, I, I, I did not think about my gender as particularly relevant for my, for my work for most of the time that I've mm. been, you know, working as a classicist or as a, as a scholar or as a translator or as a teacher. Um, I mean, to me, what I thought I was doing when I set out to, to retranslate the Odyssey first and now the Iliad was I was frustrated that most of the translations that people read in English didn't have a meter and that mm. they're laid out as verse, but they're not actually metrical verse or they're laid out as prose and they're straightforwardly prose. And I felt that that element of the metricality, musicality and read aloud ability, performability of Homer was not getting through in English translation. So I wanted to fix that and to provide metrical translations. So your your initial irritation was a lack in the aesthetics, really, mm -hmm. of the, yeah. the existing English translations. And then so at what point, <laughs> I'm just trying, I'm laughing about like, you know, it, it, it's not hubris, but like the unbelievable ambition to say, you know, like I've heard many people say, oh, I wanted to read Nietzsche in the original. So I learned German. I wanted to, you know, my father got a master's in Slavic languages and literature because he wanted to read the Russian writers in the original. A lot of people start out with this this goal of like, I'm going to master a language so that I can then understand this text that I love. Um, and, and so I'm wondering for you, at what point in that journey did you already have a command of Greek? Did you already have a command of Latin when yep. you had that impulse? Okay, so that yeah, yeah, helps. Yes, <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, I, uh, translation came very late in my career, and I wouldn't have okay. done it if I hadn't been asked. I mean, I, I've been reading ancient Greek since I was, I guess, 15. I started learning it in high school, and I'm old now, so that's like 35 years ago. Um, so I've been studying Homer in the original for decades right. and teaching Homer both in the original and in translation for many, many years. So it wasn't that I sort of started off thinking, I want to translate this text so I will learn the language. It was, I've been studying the language for, for decades. And then it was only, you know, belatedly that I was asked to consider doing retranslations of, of these poems. Interesting. Okay. So you're asked to retranslate these texts that you love. You start with the aesthetic and then, and then you drill down into, I mean, it's it's that thing where they say, you know, if a centipede had to think about moving each of its legs, it would never get anywhere. Yeah. 
you know, once you really start e- examining every single word, the the possibilities become so huge. So do you have like a, you know, an inner divining rod? Like when you come to a word, for example, I'll just refer to the first line of the poem, which is the, you know, I, I'm not even going to begin to attempt the the Greek original word, but the word that you choose to describe Odysseus is complicated, right? Which was a very different word than anything that had ever been chosen to describe him before. And the list is long, so I will not <laughs> I will not get into it here. But so you're wrestling with this word. I imagine it takes quite a bit of time. Yes. At what point, like, was there like an like an inner sort of um, sign that you have that you found the right thing? How do you know when you're sort of getting to where you want to be? Yeah, it, it's so difficult. I, mean, I think translation is sort of one of those, I think writing in general, or very often for me involves a lot of rewriting and, the, and right. any piece that you really care about, you're going to do a first draft and the first draft won't be good enough. And you'll have a sense of what you want, what your vision is for mm. the voice of this essay should be or what the voice of this short story should be or this poem. And, you're, and in the case of translation, you, of course, also can read or hear the original text and you have a sense of that's what it sounds like that's what it's doing i've Mm. read all the commentaries i've read the original to myself over and over and over and i know what the original is doing how can i do that but with completely different words and that's Mm -hmm. extremely difficult i mean i i think i in the case of so turning to tomeric translation i felt that it was this wasn't my first set of translation projects my first published translations were of seneca's tragedies and mm-hmm. so I sort of already, and then I've also published translations of Euripides and of mm-hmm. Sophocles. Um, so I, I already had a sense both of all of these are metrical poets in the original. I want all of them to to be metrical in English, but I also want the specific poetic qualities of each text to emerge. And I want to think through what are the what are my priorities? What are the priorities of how this this particular poem or play sounds? as well as how does this particular character sound? How does the narrator sound here? How does this passage or the simile sound? I feel I have to be very conscious in my own mind about what are my goals with this passage or this text. And then the, the that, that, then that in itself doesn't sort of answer, then what do I do? How do I fulfill those goals? But it at least gives me some um, sort of navigating compass around how to do mm. this. I mean, so for instance, with Homer, I, I knew that I wanted it to be metrical, and I also knew that, I mean, I, so my, as I said, my first published translations were of Seneca, who's a very bombastic and elusive and sort of in-your-face clever, um, I've read everything and you should have too, and it's also very melodramatic and sort of purple verse and over-the-top in certain ways, rhetorically. Um, and it seemed to me that quite a lot of English translations of Homer made Homer sound like Seneca. And Homer sounds nothing like Seneca in the original. Mm. So I felt that the the clarity of Homeric storytelling and the way that it's not elusive to a whole generation of previous literature. Because, of course, it's not, that's, that's historically nonsense. Homer, Homer is based on an oral tradition. So literary illusion doesn't work. And it's designed for the ready comprehension of illiterate audiences performing these poems out loud. So the clarity and speed and emotionality and also the ways that the Homeric poems are sort of proto-dramatic and have all these different characters in them. I thought those things were priorities for me, partly because they felt they'd been slightly under, like under, under represented in existing translations. Mm. How much do you 
read it out loud? Is it just constant reading it out loud? A lot of reading it out loud. Yes, all the time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ton. <laughs> and then if it doesn't sound right, I mean, I, I may read the read the original out loud a few times and then do a draft. And I use, very often write a draft by hand and then try reading it out loud. And then if it doesn't sound right, I have to try again and try again. Is there ever a listener? Like, do you do you perform it to people? Does that ever enter it? Or is it all just um, you? I, I occasionally do. I mean, I felt I, when I feel I've got a pretty good draft, what I've very often done is sort of gather a little group of grad students um, and try out a little bit on on students or whoever I can round up to listen to a, a book, a draft of a book, and then discuss what worked well. Oh, that, yeah. That's so cool. Yes. Um, one of the other crucial distinctions in, I'm not going to claim to have read any of Homer in the original and certainly not enough of multiple versions of the text to be <laughs> comparing them uh, in any kind of useful way. But um, one of the aspects of your perspective that has felt very important is an attention to characters who may have been dismissed historically, traditionally, slaves, women, I remember one piece talking about the attention you gave to how to describe the prostitutes uh, or the, 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 you know, the, the women who are on the island, on Calypso's island, right? Is that it? Yeah, so, the, so Calypso, like every elite character in Elite Woman in Homer, has a whole crowd of attendants who are, who are described in the same language as the attendants of other elite women who are clearly enslaved women. I mean, they're not, they're not prostitutes, so now they're, they're right. women who've been either born into the household as enslaved people or captured in war. And that has traditionally never been presented with any kind of complication, right? It's just, oh, those are, that's a category of slave or woman or, you know, sex worker or whatever it is. That's, we're just leaving that over there. And, it, and your gaze seems to sort of want to unpack that stuff a little bit more. Is that right? A lot of it comes from both the desire for clarity about what what exactly is the text saying or doing. Um, and so if it's really clear in the original that this person is enslaved, I don't want the reader to miss something that's clear in the original. And mm-hmm. I think it also comes from a sense that the Homeric poems, I mean, part of why I love them so much is that I think they, the vision of these texts has a lot of empathy for every single character, including the enslaved people, and then also including the people who are, you might think are, arrogant jerk warlord kind of characters. I mean, it's not that I think one should be empathetic or that Homer is empathetic only to the underdogs. I think that's absolutely not the case. The Iliad in particular is extremely empathetic to people who are in dominant positions as well. And war is a tragedy for them as well as for the people who get captured in war. Mm. Um, Do you have, sorry, this is a little bit of a random follow-up to that, but do you have, I'm just wondering as you speak, do you have a favorite, um, I'm not going to ask you to pick a favorite poem or a favorite text, but do you have a favorite character? Do you have a favorite moment in all of this stuff? Oh, it's so difficult to pick a favorite because I, I mean, I, all of it's my favorite. I love it all. Um, I mean, I, I love the similes. I love every single simile in the Iliad. And part of what I love so much about the poem is the way that it, the, the perspectives are constantly shifting. I mean, even more than in the Odyssey, in this sort of paradoxical way where the Odyssey's geographical reach is much wider than the Iliad. In the Iliad, we're always sort of stuck either inside the besieged city of Troy or in the quasi-besieged encampment of the Greeks or on the battlefield. We're, we're in this tiny set of space and time. And yet we're always sort of looking to different worlds and here are the winds blustering around and here's 
what here's how the, the rope of war is like people tugging a bit of leather to stretch it, stretch it out or like these mm. details that take us to different worlds. I mean, the virtuosic description of the new shield of Achilles forged by Hephaestus at the end of book 18, I think is a wonderful set piece description and also sort of speaks to the poem's interest in both poetic and material artifice. Mm. Do you have any fear for the the world of translation in this sort of uh, age of automation where, you know, apps can make it seem like a very simple transaction to read, you know, a line into a phone and then get spit out a line in a different language? Does that, you know, <laughs> give you tre- tremors of anxiety as it does for me? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, technology does does certain things, but it doesn't do everything. Um, mm. I mean, it, so far, I don't think AI t- translation is at all good at things that I the, the things I care about most. I mean, the, the things that have to do with style and literary form and characterization. I don't think it's any good at any of those things yet. I mean, maybe mm. one day it'll get, it'll get good at them, but so far, I haven't seen any evidence that you know if you set a piece of metrical poetry and you say translate it into the in, in a way that will reflect the meter and style and evoke all the alliteration that's happening in this passage in thoughtful ways and also be a speech that could be put inside the mouth of this character in this moment. I don't know. I don't think it's anywhere near being able to do that yet. I mean, if it is, then that's great and we'll learn things from it. So I don't think we need to be defensive about it, but I just think so far it's not there. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This is Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast, the promo. 
and in 30 seconds I'm going to tell you why you should check out the show. I, the host Scott Augerman, have a lighthearted conversation with famous celebrities like John Hamm, Allison Williams, Phoebe Bridgers, Bob Odenkirk, just to name a few. Things go a little off the rails when different eccentric characters drop by to be interviewed as well. Each week is a blend of conversations and character work from your favorite comedians as well as some new hilarious voices. Comedy Bang Bang the podcast. Listen every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Do you feel as if there's a, well, I guess the question I want to ask is, why do you think you were the first female to have translated these poems? So I'm not the first woman to have published a translation of the Iliad. Caroline Alexander published oh, got it. a translation of the Iliad in, I think, okay. 2015. And it's totally different from mine in its approach. It's not metrical. It has these long lines. It's much more archaizing. I mean, in a way, it's sort of still looking back to the tradition of translation of Richmond Lattimore, who, whose translations in the mid-20th century are still read. So, I mean, I think it's sort of worth saying that because it's a way of, sort okay. of saying women aren't all the same and men don't all translate Correct. the same. And of course, I'm not, you know, there are many female Homerists who are much older than me. And people, women have been studying Homer as scholars, you know, for generations. And right. women have been translating Homer into different languages. So I think it's sort of a cluster of books up with um, retranslation of ancient poetry within the Anglophone world, mm-hmm. which is different from, you know, the world of French classics or Italian classics, where, there, where it's actually quite common for there to be women, female classicist translators. And I think it sort of has to do with a, a sort of cluster of different things. One is to do with how translation is conceived of in the academy, in the Anglophone academy, as something very marginal. Like you're not going to get tenure for a translation, that kind of thing. Mm. So if you're somebody who might already be struggling to get tenure, are you going to sign up to do an epic poem which will not get you tenure and not get you promoted? Um, And then there's also the cluster of things that has to do with retranslations very often happen because an editor at a publishing house approaches a particular person and who you're going to call, you're going to call somebody who might fit your model of who a classicist is. And and that I think that combination of things may well mean the person the the editor calls or the person who wants to do this is has very often been a retired retired old man, rather right. than a woman or rather than a person of color or rather than somebody mm-hmm. in like all these different kinds of social identities which you know there are classicists who are who aren't old men and yet the old men seem to, seem to have dominated the the field of that particular subset of classics. Yeah. And among other fields. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. I, I, I was wondering, too, about, um, you know, you, you talk in an interview about how your mother was in, a bit of a vanguard in in having children yeah. as an academic and that, you know, perhaps there's some sort of generational, intergenerational dividends that are being paid for 
our parents' generations having kind of gone through that discomfort of, you know, daring to do both things at once. And, you know, I say our generation, I think we're about the same age, you know, that, that we sort of reap the benefit of that and then are able to to be available to do what we do in newer ways. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It's such a, a Western specific thing. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I also, I'm just specifically about my mother's work. So she was a Shakespearean scholar um, and she wrote a biography of Shakespeare, which in in her obituaries and sort of in, in people looking back on her legacy, I felt there was a lot of sort of presentation of her as deeply iconoclastic, as as if people were sort of weren't able to see how much she loves Shakespeare or loved Shakespeare as a, as a poet, as a dramatist, um, because she was sort of questioning the received norms about Shakespeare the man. And I see a sort of echo of the ways that people sort of sometimes think I'm so iconoclastic in presenting Homer in new ways. And it's not that I'm doing that because I'm t- trying to rip Homer down. It's, it's, I'm doing that because I have a different perspective about how to translate Homer. Um, so yeah. I, 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 in a way, I absolutely agree with you that um, our mothers and both spiritual mothers and literal mothers have paved the way. Um, mm. But then also there are echoes of what's happened in earlier generations can happen again, still be happening. In another interview, you also mentioned that the when you, you were cast in a role in the Odyssey in elementary school, which is also what they performed at my children's ele- elementary school. So I love that that tradition persists right. all over the place. Um, and that you were cast as Athena, who you think is like the most kick-ass of all the gods, and that you aspire to be like Athena. And as I read in your sort of translator notes about how it's time to to shift some of the received ideas about Homer, about, you know, these texts, about the world that it portrays. It does feel very bold and brave in a way that, um, you know, I think Athena would be very <laughs> proud of. But do you feel that way? Do you feel sort of that you're like, you know, taking a big chance when you, to me, that seems like a really daring thing to write, to say, you know, that you're challenging the, um, you know, the fathers of this this school of thought and saying, I don't think so. I think that maybe there's a new way to do this. Does that feel scary? <laughs> um, I mean, maybe there's two parts to the question. One that's a minor one that I think I maybe should say first is, I mean, Athena is is a daddy's girl. I mean, I think she's she's a very problematic feminist icon because she's always speaking up for the power of the father, except when she's colluding with Hera against him. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I I can certainly see the coolness of Athena as just as I could when I was eight, but I don't think she's entirely a role model for people in real life. Fair uh, enough. I, I mean, I think both that, of course, it's scary to say, I don't think that, I think this, but I also think it's a complete waste of time to publish something unless it's doing something new. I mean, I, I, I think unless I can say there are particular things that I want to do differently, then, you know, I'm wasting everyone's time by publishing mm-hmm. a new translation of a book that's been translated and translations been published, you know, for, cent- for 400 years. And there are dozens of them out there. And a lot of them are quite, <laughs> quite similar to each other. And I think that's a bit of a waste of time. So I mean, I tend to think it would be even scarier to feel my work has no originality whatsoever. Right. That's a terrifying. Right. Much more terrifying. No, that's a very good point. Idea very good I, point. I want to say something a little bit different because, you know, otherwise, who cares? You use the word feminist. I'm wondering, 
it's become, I feel, such a such a loaded term. Maybe it always was. And I wonder, I've seen you called a feminist feminist translator or that this is a feminist translation of these texts. Is that how do you feel about that? I think it's it's very loaded. And I don't call myself a feminist translator because I think that tends to foreground a particular um, feature of my identity that is really not the only one or the main one I think about. I mean, as I was saying before, the main thing I think about like all day when I'm working is poetics. And does mm-hmm. that have anything to do with gender? Usually not. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I also think feminist translator can be used as code for a woman who produces translations and we don't trust them. And, <laughs> and, and might, must so be, true. everything she says and does must be filtered through her ideology, which is again code for she's a woman and we don't trust her. And I don't know why I think all of that is, is so unfair and so, you know, bogus. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I also I feel uncomfortable about saying, no, I'm not a feminist translator because I'm a translator and I am a woman. And I do think, you know, in general, feminism has been a power for good in the world. And, you know, if, if feminism means, you know, there are actually real structural inequalities based on gender and that's wrong, then I'm a feminist. I mean, there's right. a, lot, a lot of ways right. that feminism seems to me straightforwardly right. But is that, you know, the main thing about my work? No, it's not. Well, I think it's appropriate to interrogate the meaning of a label yes. <laughs> in this conversation. Absolutely. Yes. Words matter. Yeah. Um, so a question that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast and can be answered in any way that it makes sense to you is if you have what you would consider a significant other in, in your life's work could be a, an actual life partner, could be a teacher, you know, a, a, an idol of some other kind. Is there somebody or some multitude of people who feel that way to you? Ah, that's an interesting question. And it's hard for me to figure out immediately um, what the answer is. I mean, I mean, obviously, as a translator, there's always a significant other, right? There's always the original text. I mean, I, I, I'm hesitating to say original author if, we, if it's Homer, because I don't want to get into the whole authorship questions about Homer, but the original text is the significant other in most wow. of my work. And the, the Greek Iliad awesome. is the significant other behind my, my translations of the Iliad. That's great. I mean, maybe that is I, a we, totally original answer. I love. Thank you so much for this. This was really so special. Good. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll be releasing bonus episodes right up until season two comes out. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And as always, we welcome any and all suggestions for upcoming episodes. You can email us at significantpod at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. 
Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.